Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we come before your throne of grace and mercy by invitation and by encouragement that we can come boldly through the blood of Jesus and receive grace in our time of need. We've gathered here this morning for the purpose of worshiping you, exalting your name, lifting up Jesus and the hope of the gospel in him. And God, we want to hear from your word and be instructed by your spirit. So we thank you for these moments that you have blessed us with. There are many here who have burdens and needs and concerns, and I pray that they would find their hope and their strength in you and be reminded of how good you are as our Father, the one who loves us and cares for us and takes care of us in every aspect of life. So Lord, may this remainder of this service honor and glorify you and draw us closer to you. And I pray especially for the time of celebration of the Lord's table and the symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus, the hope that we have because of what Jesus did for us at Calvary. May our hearts be cleansed, our hands be pure as we approach you this morning. And as we proclaim the gospel through the table, I pray that there would be some who would believe and come to know you and be able to celebrate as part of the family. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off in the first message in the series, Great Stories from God's Word. And we're going to continue on through a good portion of chapter 2 and chapter 3 in a message that is entitled, The Tragic Fall. Now, I will admit on the front end of this message that it is a heavy message that points us to the darkness of what rebellion against God brings. But I'll also say that it is a message filled with hope because of the light that God shines into our lives through His Son by His grace and for His glory, pointing us to deliverance in Him. So while we see the reality of what happens through sin, we'll also see the hope of what happens through salvation. Sin is defined in the Bible as rebellion against God. It is missing the mark of God's holiness. It is transgression against the law of God. It is doing what God has told us not to do. You know, as I do, that the world is full of sin. We struggle with it on a personal level, within our families, within our church, within our community, all kinds of sin everywhere. But I want to remind you that there was a time when that was not the case. There was a time when the world was perfect and there was no sin. Our minds and our world are so corrupted by sin that it is difficult for us to even conceive of such a time in such a place. But we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden after God's creation and the beauty and the goodness of what he had made. And he placed man and woman in paradise. And we find man early in the scripture as God's creation. And one of the key things that's important to note is that he was communing with God. He was walking in fellowship with God. 
there was a spiritual unity between God and man who had been created in the image of God. And the world was marked by harmony and peace. And life prevailed. So we asked the question, what happened? What went wrong? Well, the passage before us today tells us of the tragic fall. And we pick up reading in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 where we left off. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. God made man and formed him out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into his soul, creating him in his image as the crowning creation of God. And because God did not want man to be alone, he formed Eve out of the rib of the man. And God gave them everything that they could possibly need. His blessing was great upon them. And they were to take care of this garden that God had made and take care of this creation that God had spoken into being. But then sin came as a result of temptation. Now let me just say sort of as a parenthesis or as part of the introduction here that this is in a sense part of the mystery of free will. Why did God give to man the ability to choose either to obey him or to disobey him? And the answer is, somewhere in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, in the eternal wisdom of God, he saw fit that it was better for him to create man in a way that he could respond to him in obedience or disobey him and give him the freedom of will rather than not giving him the freedom of the will. And we trust God, even though we cannot fully understand why that was how God made us. We believe that God saw that that also was good. Genesis chapter 3 is going to introduce us to the serpent. 
and the serpent is in the Garden of Eden. And Satan is clothing himself as a serpent, as one who is crafty and subtle and shrewd. But in order to really understand the serpent, we have to go back further than Genesis chapter 3 to understand what brought him to this point. Lucifer, the most beautiful and the powerful, uh, most powerful of the angels, was not content with his position in heaven. He wanted to be, because of his pride, higher than the position of God. And he led a rebellion against God. And he was ultimately cast out of heaven because of that. And there were many angels who went with him. And you can read about this directly and then also inferred in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. But we find further commentary into this in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. Listen to what the scripture says. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, and here's the connection, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So notice here that the serpent that we'll be introduced to in chapter 3 is none other than our spiritual enemy, the devil. Satan himself, who is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the father of liars, and all who lie follow after him. And this is who he is. And he introduces sin in the garden. And we pick up reading here in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We today are both sinners by nature and by choice. What we find here in Genesis 3 is the doctrine of original sin, meaning that this is the origin of sin, but is also the source of our sin. So you don't have to teach a small child how to sin because they've already been born with a sin nature. And the scripture says, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5 in verse 12, where he says, just as sin entered the world through one man, being Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So we are sinners by nature, but then we are also sinners by choice. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We willfully decide to do what God has told us not to do. And when we sin in that way, we are sinning by our own choice. We are using the freedom that God has given to us wrongly to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. Satan had the power to tempt Eve 
But Satan did not have the power to make her sin. She willfully chose to do what she did, as did Adam who followed her. What happened in the tragic fall, and what can we learn from it as we seek to live for the glory of God? And wrapped up in this is what the serpent's strategy is to come after us to steal, kill, and destroy. And the first part of the truth that I want you to see here is that the serpent's strategy is to attack the word given by God. The serpent's strategy is to attack the word given by God. Eve was there alone in the garden. She's standing by the forbidden tree where she did not belong to begin with. And the scripture says that the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He is the most shrewd of all. His goal is to deceive and to distort and to cause you to doubt and to discourage you in the things of God. And his shrewdness and his cunning ability to do that draws the attention and the affection of people away. And the serpent said to Eve in verse 1, Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Satan misquoted God's word. God had said man could eat from every tree except one, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man had everything that he could possibly want. He had all the fruit in the garden he could possibly want, but there was this one prohibition. And he's told that if he eats of it, there are going to be consequences that are going to come, and death is going to follow. Now, Eve was confused, apparently. She was deceived by the line of questioning that the serpent was approaching her with. And she began to think that God's command was too restrictive. So note how she turns the word that had come from God into something that it also was not. In verse 2, it says, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. God never said, Don't touch it. What God said was, Don't eat it. But Satan's attack plan has changed very little throughout the ages. His first goal would be to steal the word of God away from us if possible. You remember Jesus in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. He identifies the seed as the word of God and he says that the devil comes and he snatches away the seed of the word. So the enemy's goal to start with before he distorts the word is to try to take it away from you. He, he wants to steal it from you. He wants to snatch it away from you. But once you've heard the word, what he wants to do is he wants to confuse you and he wants to attack the word that has been given to you by God. So he will do everything that he possibly can to undermine the word of God in your life. Sometimes in our age, he will use a supposed intellectual attack causing people to believe that the Bible is not historical, the Bible is not rational, the Bible is not scientific, and anyone who is uh, intelligent in this age and who has the world's wisdom and has followed after the world's philosophy, certainly they wouldn't be foolish enough to believe in an ancient book that is nothing more than a, 
a story of fables and tales that are symbolic, but certainly not literal. So he wants to appeal to the pride of man to say that man is so intelligent that he can sit in judgment over the word of God and say, well, that's the part I want to follow after because that's a benefit for me. But that's the part I don't want to follow after because I, I really like doing that. And we begin to make God in our image and we form his word around our lives rather than forming our lives around his word. Sometimes the enemy will also use a social attack where he will cause people to believe that the word of God is out of date. So it goes something like this. We're in modern times. We are now in a progressive age. We are in the 21st century. Certainly the morality that is taught in the Bible, that was for their context and their culture, but it doesn't apply to today. We've got to get with the times. We've got to modernize the Bible. We've got to make the Bible fit the culture that we're now in so that we can call good, evil, and evil good. And it happens all the time. And yet people are deceived by it. Sometimes he will use a selfish attack. And I've heard people say time and time again as a pastor, Pastor, I know that's what God's Word says, but I believe God wants me to be happy. So therefore, I'm going to do this, even though it is completely contrary to what God has said to do. He appeals to our selfishness that somehow God is not telling us the truth So therefore, we've got to do what we want to do. What is the remedy for this? It is to know the Word of God, to believe the Word of God, and to stand on the Word of God. And we find our example in none other than Jesus, the Son of God who is the living Word, who is the representation of all that is good and holy and right and perfect and true. And when he was on this earth and he was tempted, he appealed to the word of God as true and as his defense in times of temptation. You remember when Jesus was preparing to begin his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, and the Bible says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, and then the tempter, the enemy, the serpent came to him, Satan as it was, came to him and began to tempt him. And when he tempted him to turn stones into bread, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When he tempted him to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus said in verse 7, you shall not test the Lord your God. When he took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor in exchange for worshiping Satan in that moment, Jesus said in verse 10, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I, wanted, I just want to put the stake down here. I want to lay my foundation. And I want to say without any hesitation or reservation that if Jesus, who is the living word, believes that the word of God is true and should be followed and is our defense, then it's good enough for me. Because Jesus is our Savior. The word of God is true. God can be trusted. Now note the contrast. God accomplishes his will on the earth through truth. Satan accomplishes his purposes 
through lies. Faith in God's truth leads to victory. Faith in Satan's lies leads to defeat. And Psalm 33 and verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart are from generation to generation. So this is unchanging. The word of God is rock solid. And I'll tell you, if you will settle in your heart and in your mind that God's word is true and that he is trustworthy and he is to be followed and he is to be obeyed, it will change the trajectory of your entire life because it will be a life that is built on truth and on what's eternal. Base your life on it because the serpent's going to continually attack the word of God. And the second part here I want you to see is that the serpent's strategy is to attack the sufficiency provided from God. He will attack the sufficiency provided from God. Eve began to doubt in her heart what God had said. She misrepresented what God had said. So the serpent in his shrewdness goes deeper here. And he says in verse 4, no, you're you're not going to die. He said... God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to know good and evil. You're going to be like God. This was the lie of personal fulfillment. If we take the bait that the temptation will meet our needs more than what God has given us, then we are in trouble. Rather than depending on the sufficiency of what God had provided, she was tempted with the idea of her eyes being opened. Now, Satan was twisting the concept of death here because God had intended that spiritual death would come first and then physical death would come later. As it was, they were not killed in the moment. They did not die physically, although they were banished from the garden, as we'll see in just a moment. But spiritual death came immediately. So when the Scripture says that we are dead... Ephesians chapter 2, in our trespasses and our sins, we're not physically graveyard dead, but we are spiritually dead. We are without spiritual life. We are without a way back to God on our own. And rather than depending on the sufficiency of what God provided, she was tempted to be drawn toward power and strength and independence. You're going to be like God. And isn't it interesting that that was the very sin that got Lucifer in trouble to begin with? He wanted God's position. He wanted to be exalted higher than God. He wanted to be like God in that regard. And now he's pulling her in. He said, it'll be all right. You're not going to die. He knows you're going to know as much as he knows if you do this. And she began to doubt the sufficiency of what God had provided. And he was telling her, go ahead. It'll be worth it. And rather than depending on the sufficiency of what God provided, she was tempted with the idea of knowing good and evil apart from God. She wouldn't need God. That's the lie of sin. It's independence. You don't need him. Do what you want. Or there's no God. There's no one to whom you'll be accountable. Go ahead. Indulge. What's it going to hurt? Everybody else is doing it. The Broadway, it's got a lot of people on it. And they seem to be having a good time. 
And all these doubts begin to come into our minds. And isn't it interesting that the tree of life is not even mentioned in this part of the discussion? All Eve could see was the forbidden fruit. Now track with me here because this is what happens to us today as well. Let me give you an example of this. There might be a fine Christian man who has a wonderful wife and beautiful children and a nice vocation. And his wife is good to him and they have a rather satisfying marriage and life is good in their household. And then the devil says, hey, did you notice that woman? Hey, what about that lady? And he begins to think, well, maybe, maybe my wife's not all that great. My kids will certainly understand. It's not going to affect me. My vocation is enough. And pretty soon, the enemy has led that person down a path of destruction. They don't see the tree of life. They don't see the beautiful family God has provided. They don't see the wonderful provision of God in all that he's given. All they can see is the one thing that's not good for them. And I don't know a lot, but I know enough to say to you with confidence here today that there are some people in this room, whether it's that particular sin or any other number of sins, who the enemy is drawing you in and he's causing you to think there's something better. What God has done for you is not sufficient. He can't be trusted. Go ahead, indulge. It won't matter. And when you're in that spot, the enemy has you exactly where he wants you. And he will destroy you. And he will kill you if he possibly can. And that's where Eve found herself. He lied to her, assuring her of something that was not true. And then that leads me to the last part. The serpent's strategy is to attack the contentment that is to be found in God. In verse 6, it says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. This makes me think of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the eyes, the woman saw that it was delightful to look at. She should have stayed away, but she looked and she gave the serpent an open door. And she thought about the temptation, and now she saw that it was pleasing. The lust of the flesh, she saw that it was good for food, and her flesh was being drawn toward it. The pride of life, she sought contentment apart from God. And it is impossible to find contentment apart from God. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life were drawing her in. Temptation is charming to the soul, but it carries significant consequences. She ate of the fruit. She gave some to her husband also who was with her, and he ate it. And in that moment, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed together for themselves a covering because they were ashamed. Here was the turning point. She decided the benefits were great of her sin and the consequences were unreasonable. She decided the benefits of her sin were great and the consequences of her sin were unreasonable. Folks, that's the anatomy of idolatry. 
It's idolatry where the enemy holds up to us something that looks very alluring. It's something that looks very attractive. It looks like something that's going to bring us satisfaction. It's something that's going to bring us pleasure. And it may bring momentary satisfaction. It may bring momentary pleasure. But the enemy is hiding behind it. And when we partake of the idolatry and our hearts and our affections and our attitudes and our actions are drawn away from God, the enemy draws us in and he destroys us. And he does it because the lie is that we can find contentment apart from God. And it's impossible. I pick up reading again in chapter 3 and verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Understand, these are rhetorical questions. God knew where he was. He knew why he did it. He knew what the reasoning was, but God's asking him because he wants the answer. He wants him to man up and take responsibility for what he's done. And the man replied, not so much doing that, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord asked the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any animal, wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. And the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil... He must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the tree, or so the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. I've heard all my life that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Nothing could be truer. And that's revealed here in these verses. Nobody can hide from God. The enemy is shrewd. And he will tell you in your sin... That you can hide from your family, 
You can hide from your brothers and sisters in Christ what you're doing, and you can even hide from God, and it'll be all right. You might hide from your family, and you might hide from your brothers and sisters in Christ, but it is impossible to hide from God. And God sought them out, and he said, where are you? God is the one who seeks us out. And Adam told him that he had heard him, and that they were naked, and they were hiding because of that. And God asked him how he knew that. God knew how he knew it. But there had to be some sadness in the heart of God in that moment. In the rebellion that had taken place. And God pronounced a curse on the serpent and consequences for Adam and Eve. Now these consequences that are mentioned first, hey, they're not pleasant. I know I could get an amen on that because they remain true today. Even through the travails of childbirth and the difficulty of labor on the earth and the struggle in creation because of the fall But let me tell you the worst consequence of it all, and that is separation from God. They were there as close as you could possibly be, a a foreshadowing of heaven, perfect communion with God, daily intimacy with God, fellowship with the one who had created them and given them life. And now they're cast out of the garden, separated from God. And friends, if that was the end of the story, it would be a sad end. But I want you to notice what God promised and then what he did, because God has graciously provided the way back from separation to salvation. And there are two parts here. In verse 15 is the first mention of the gospel and how God has graciously provided the way back from separation to salvation because he mentions that the seed of the woman would strike the head of the serpent and he would strike his heel. This is a mention of the coming Messiah. This is the first foreshadowing of what is to come in Christ. And then over in verse 22, it says that the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. This has sacrificial overtones to it, that God himself took clothing made from animal skins that had been sacrificed and gave them a covering. You see, it's God who gives us covering. It's God who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was God who laid his wrath on his only son so that our sins could be forgiven. So today as we come to this Lord's table toward the close of this service, we're coming recognizing that God has graciously provided the way back from separation to salvation. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And that he was buried and then he rose on the third day according to the scripture. This is the hope of the gospel. That there's deliverance. And though we're separated in our sins, we can be reconciled to our maker. And we can find all that is true in him. But we learn that not only is the word of God true, it's sufficient. Christ is enough that our contentment is found in God.
So we're faced in that moment with a crisis of belief. Will we trust in God and live? Or will we follow after the shrewdness of the serpent and die? Will we remain separated? Or will we live reconciled? Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and our hearts are turned toward the Lord, we're about to approach this Lord's table that is a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus. What was promised long ago in Genesis 3 and verse 15 and then again in the covering, the foreshadowing that was given in the sacrifice, we recognize in hindsight that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. My sins that are many, your sins that are many, and God has graciously extended salvation to us. So in these moments, we're going to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word, through His Spirit, and in the glory of His Son. If you do not know Christ today, and you are remaining separated from God, He invites you to come and to follow Jesus If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. And if you know him, is there anything in your life that is hindering your fellowship with him? Would you claim the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Would you let God know what it is in your heart and your life It needs to be made right with him. Lord, be honored and glorified in this time as we lift up your son Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, and the soon return. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.